Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sour and Sass. I am very excited to be joined today by the CMO of Litmus, Melissa Sargent. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you very much. Very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Now, how did I do on the last name? Did I do good? You did great. Okay, because I was going to go French and call you Sargent. But I, <laughs> I did. Like, that was all. <laughs> I was going to go the more direct route. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for being here. I think, you know, before. One of the first things I want to start with that we were talking about um, a little bit offline was how marketing's changed and how digital has been the driver of that change. Now, when you look back and you think about it changing, you say digital, but what part of digital changed marketing in your mind? Like, why did digital change it? Because it's theoretically, it's just another medium, right? Like before that, we had trade shows, we had field marketing, right? We had press releases, we had TV, radio, paper. What did digital do that none of those did that changed the dynamic in your mind? I think it gave us insights into our customers and prospects that helped us make much better decisions and help us start to guide the customer journey in a much more compelling way. So when the website became more than just a piece of brochure where and now today, it's the centerpiece of our demand generation engine where we want to drive people there. We want them to engage with our content. We want them to educate themselves about the problems and our solutions. And now that we have the insights to understand that and be able to help guide that journey, help decide what uh, parts of our marketing mix are performing well and what are underperforming so that we can start to invest more and solve other problems and really help to do this in a much more scientific led way versus, you know, I think trade shows are working for us. Let's do five of those this this year. We're able to really forecast and you know, I talked to my team about sort of, we always have to have our hands on the wheels. We're kind of always messing with these dials and, and the cockpit and that digital gives us that ability to be in complete control. I love that. Now, maybe I'm nostalgic and we look back. Before there was websites, before there was digital, we'd run a campaign, right? And then we would look at revenue, see if it went up or down, and then we'd stop, start, spend more, spend less. Is that fair to a certain extent? Yes. Okay. But we also, because we didn't have so much analytics, we had to actually talk to our customers. So we would do user groups, right? There's focus groups, there's user groups, there's lots of user testing. The ad was less about the distribution and more about the creative. Yes. Have we lost our soul a little bit? Like, I know we have all this analytics. I know we have all this data, but it feels sometimes like we're dumber. Like, like, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. Because we... We turn our campaigns on and off like it's a faucet, regardless of our sales cycle, right? Like, you know, a campaign doesn't work in cute in one quarter, yet our sales cycle is three quarters, and like, ah, and we throw it away, right? Like, and we assume we know all these things about our audience because we can look at a LinkedIn pixel, yet we don't decide to do customer interviews. And like, what are the things we need to bring back in your mind? Because I'm at this point, right, where I'm running this digital agency, I'm working with all these publicly traded, amazing CMOs, great talent. And it's almost like we got worse at making people want us. Like, why does someone choose us? Like, I feel like we lost our soul. How do we get that back? We definitely have to keep, we can't sort of lose all of that creativity that 
you know, brought us to the, the world of digital. And I think we talk about modern marketers now, it's not right brain or left brain, it's full brain. And being able to bring in those tried and true methods that worked for many, many years. So focus groups, but we can do them more efficiently now than, than we did before with online capabilities. We can distill that data more quickly. We still have to bring all of those things into our, our marketing and leverage the ability of science and data to help us continue to continuously improve those things together. But it's really not one or the other. It's absolutely both. Yeah, no, I, I love that. It's like, cause for me, I get like, I see it's like there's almost like two parts of marketing. There's the people who do TV commercials and then there's everyone else. Because it's like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like there's only creative ideas I see, it feels like a lot of times, are on TV. Except I don't know any of those people. Like, all the real people doing marketing are not those people. And I'm just like, in my brain, at least for my own agency and my own passion for marketing, like I'm trying to bring the creativity of TV commercials to the performance of Google search and landing pages and all that. So it's a, it's a very interesting little world we're living in, isn't it? Yeah, and I think sort of where those things are starting to blend a bit is now that we're seeing more video in that those other channels that we're doing and leveraging videos, particularly short form content. Uh, I think you start to you can bring back some of that creativity that maybe you lost on a landing page that needed to convert, and so you just have like one simple CTA and then you know your form and not a lot of you know creativity there you're just going for function to make sure that people people's eyeballs are searching and that are looking in the right place to fill in and take action on that form i think things like video help us you know bridge that gap i love what you said about forms so when i was looking at litmus you all actually do something really cool that i haven't seen people do lately for some reason i never i don't even want know why people aren't doing it but when i go to your pricing page you and i get try it now or try for free or whatever that CTA is. You have two, right? You can buy it or you can do it free, right? You have a dual CTA on each of your pricing except for enterprise. But if you look at your two kind of accessible plans, you try for free and then sends you to a form, but then the pricing is still on the right. Yes. What led you to that? Because I thought that was such a helpful feature. I don't know how it performs. But I thought it was helpful because it's like, oh yeah, that's why I wanted this. And you like remind me as I have this like as I'm about to give you something, you're reminding me what I'm going to get for what I'm giving you. And I thought it was really clever. What's the testing behind that? Yeah, we do. We test all the time and we test all kinds of things um, uh, on our site and particularly on our pricing page, because when you're optimizing for people to activate from their trial sign up, you know, little micro moments of 0.1%, 0.1% make a big difference. So by, and I think what, why we saw such improvements when we added that capability is people like transparency. They like to know what they're, they're getting. They don't want to feel like some sort of um, uh, unintentional opt-in is going to take over after they hit submit. And so by showing them exactly what they're going to get and for how long they're going to get it, uh, you build that trust with the, the customer and it makes them want to engage with your brand more. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I, I love the quote at the bottom too. I thought the quote you put at the bottom of that is also helpful. Um, you also do something really unique in your marketing where you still have like a bunch of free tools now, they seem slightly legacy in the sense that I'm sure you're like, I wish I could update them. I, I, you have that look on your face. But do tools work? Like, 
how how impactful, right? Because you have some really cool ones like email market share, uh, email deliverability tests, promo tabs, like all, and they're all very product integrated. So like, I was I was like caught asking these questions. I'm like, she obviously hasn't rebranded them, so they can't matter too much. Yet simultaneously, I know they help. So like, how, like how do they fit in your mind? Like free tools and things like that. Yeah. So the free tools are really, really important. We get great engagement from them. So just a little bit of history on um, our site. We did a major site overhaul last year um, and some of the things got higher priority. The tools, we actually have them on a list. We've been checking them down. Well, I, so like, list. I get it. It's no condemnation. Email like, market I, share is actually, I, we're doing some work on that one um, right now because it's so compelling for people oh, yeah. to understand that information. But they love uh, the the free tools, and you know we've had them for a long time as as a company. And I think that's one of the unique things about Litmus is that our passion for email, the email community in general, and doing whatever we can to help them do their their jobs more effectively, has really pulled through. And you see it in areas like the free tools. You see it. Um, on the practical articles on our blog that we are very passionate about this and dedicated to helping them make their, you know, make their jobs even easier to, for them to be more effective with their email marketing programs. So yes, look for more updates to those uh, free tools and see now you're helping me because I can get, I can get more time with the engineering team. I can pull this little clip out and send it over to engineering and, and they can uh, up it on the priority list. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, in my brain, I was like, I got all nerdy for a second. I was like, okay, move it onto a subfolder. So all the links, <laughs> products better. So I got a little nerdy for a second, but you said something that I thought was interesting. So I see Litmus as very much like the way you're doing your marketing was interesting in the sense that I feel like a small sender doesn't use you and you're more for large senders. Is that a fair assessment to a certain extent? Actually, we are we we run the spectrum. So we have really? organizations that have you know a very small uh, email team, you know one to two people on the email team, to some of the largest organizations uh, that you can think of, blue chip brands. And so, really, that's the great thing about Litmus is that we can we can serve all of those markets from very small businesses, traditional mid market, all the way up to the the large. Um, enterprise. And as a business, if you're a high growth business and you're scaling and your email team is growing, you can never outgrow Litmus. There's always a next step up that you can take in the platform. I love that. Now, people said they came for the sour candy. So we should probably do some sour candy. Are you ready, Melissa? I'm ready. <laughs> I think I'm ready. Okay. 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 Let's do this thing. All right. Now, which one are you doing? I'm, I'm doing do I'm doing the warhead and I'm doing mango melon. All right, I'm doing toxic waste, so we're in this together. Okay. You ready? Yep. The first one's not as bad. I call it the primer. Okay. The second one, that's the real, that's the main coat. Now it's I amazing that somebody made these. <laughs> I yeah. Even more amazing someone bought them. Right? Like that's us. Like <laughs> no. I haven't seen a lot of people do what you're doing in software lately, and I didn't do it. I started there and moved away. What I mean by that is like practitioner-centric content. In other words, I've seen software companies, service businesses like myself, we're slowly moving away to how to do it content, to why you should do it content. 
And it seems like you've stayed on the how to do it content. And it was refreshing. It was nice. I don't have any like thoughts. And I was just curious why, like a lot of us are trying to go up the buying committee in our content. And it seems like you very much embrace something I believe, which is your champion is more important than your decision maker. And it looks like you went all in on marketing to your champion. What's your thought process there around kind of staying practitioner centric and very detail centric in your content? So you bring up a really great observation in that we too are seeing an escalation in terms of buying committees getting larger and also just marketing managers and marketing directors getting more involved in what's happening from an email marketing perspective. But we can't lose what got us here. Yeah. You know, we have, you know, over 9,000 customers, 700,000 users who became very dependent upon us to help them do their jobs. And so that practitioner content will always be a core part of what we do. Now, this year we've launched some new series. We have something that I do called Leading Forward, where we're talking more to the leadership track, more of those value type stuff. Yeah where we're tackling bigger issues like personalization, the third party cookie, what that means for the marketing organization. Right now I'm working on some content and doing some research around the marketing organization and then the need for agility and full brain marketers and what that means for us as marketing leaders and how we structure and build our teams. So over time, we've been adding a little bit more of that um, uh, decision maker type content but still not losing what got us here and what so many um, organizations depend upon us uh, to deliver for them. I like that, Melissa. It's like, you, you know, I, this is my big thing in, right now. Directors being so successful and everything I'm doing is like, how do we keep our soul? Because it's so easy to see success and then crumble underneath it because you start to focus on yourself instead of your customers. And it's really cool how you're saying customer-centric and not staying litmus centric. I know that sounds crazy, but I don't think people realize how hard it is to stay customer centric instead of litmus centric when you get larger. It's actually insanely hard. Now, with that being said, how are you thinking about product-led growth? Because you have your tools, but I still can't get into your product. And I know it's something that you have to be juggling in your mind right now. And it's not an easy thing for especially like historical companies. It's easy yep. to start a SaaS company today to be like, oh yeah, we're going to have a live demo environment. It's a lot harder to convince historical companies. You have a chief revenue officer, you got a chief product officer, you got a CTO, you've got a board, you got a CEO who might not be bought in. How do you think about product-led growth and do you think it's the future for Limus? Yes. And you know, we have a good heritage in that we started, so you can, you know, engage with us any way you want to. You can come and give us your credit card, um, and start using Litmus. Or if you're a larger organization, you can go through a more traditional demo, direct sales motion. But you can look heritage, at five users, right? For free, theoretically. Yeah, yeah we have a free trial, so you can come in. So our goal is to get as many people into the platform, get them using it, engaging with it, and yeah. loving it. And wherever they are, we'll meet them wherever they are. So if they need more features, more capabilities, they need they're a more sophisticated organization, so they need to sync with their, their Marketo instance or their Oracle instance. We can help them on that journey. So product-led growth has been in our DNA, I think, even before product-led growth was kind of the buzzword that it is today, and that we're very thoughtful and 
that experience, you know, once we treat them like customers long before they're customers. And so we want to make sure that when they come into that trial, that we're walking them through that in multiple channels through the product itself. They're getting a highly relevant email nurture that's helping them engage and make sure that they get to experience all parts of the product in a really meaningful way so that they can truly understand what it can do for their company. And it's one of those things, as you know, like you're never done with that that stuff. We're constantly testing and looking at other things that we can do to optimize that. So I would say that product growth mentality has been central in our company from day one. I love that, especially with your try free. Now, I have a couple of thoughts around product like growth. I'd love to get your feedback on because I haven't seen anyone do it. I haven't been able to do it with anyone, but I want to. So I have this belief that there's a magic moment that occurs in your product and that every company could identify. So a magic moment is my mind is like if you own your mix panel, your heap, your pendo, whatever you're using for product analytics, you can correlate activation like at a statistically significant level. So if you ran a regression analysis on all your free trials, you could say that if a user does X, Y, or Z, then they will be exponentially more likely to give us their credit card or something like that, right? Like, and that's what I call the magic moment. Now, my goal is to try to figure out how to integrate that magic moment back into the front end of the marketing so that people are compelled to get to the magic moment after action. For you all, how do you all think of your magic moment? Like how, and then how do you try to get that from your product back into your front end website? Yeah, we definitely look at all of those kinds of metrics. So we know there's certain magic moments within their journey with Litmus. If they add a user that's um, within their account during that time, we know, ah, that's, you know, that's a good thing for us. If they don't add a user, that's another insight for us that we need to make sure that they understand, look, you can have up to three users. You want to be able to, you know, have everyone in your organization be able to, to leverage this. So we take all of those insights and we're very prescriptive. You know, the thing about being an email company, we do a lot within the product. Yeah. But as an email company, we have to be darn good at email. And part of that um, yeah. is nurturing them in both channels and sort of how we and, and taking those insights and figuring out like from a messaging and positioning perspective, is there anything that we need to take care of there or think about differently there? Are our, our users changing over time? Are their needs changing over time that that would influence our messaging and positioning? All of those little you know nuggets of information are incredibly insightful and valuable across our marketing organization. Okay. So I love that. I was expand on that. One of my ideas, I, I haven't been able to do it, and this is kind of what I'm curious about is do you have data that tells you which users are like your best users? Yes. Yes. Could you theoretically hook your product analytics up to segment like a customer data platform, like a CDP? And then could you theoretically build lookalikes on Facebook and LinkedIn from your best users to then do that for your advertising instead of relying on like third-party targeting? We do. We do lookalikes and we do uh, work in and segment as well. And we also do oh, Facebook true. advertising. Um, yeah. And so we look at it and, you know, from a lot of different perspectives in terms of who our best customers are. Um, uh, if we have, you know, when you run an online business, you're going to have some churn. People come in and out of the, the platform. There is episodic 
usage, just that's just inherent in that kind of business and being able to retarget them and bring them uh, back into the platform. We have a lot of users that, and particularly in smaller organizations that may choose to use us episodically, they have certain peak times of year, but what we see is that they all, they typically almost always come back, but we make sure from a marketing perspective that we're giving them a nice surround sound and lots of little nudges and reminders to come back to Litmus. I love that. Now it is sour and sass. Are you ready? Yeah, I am. <laughs> we got one more. This is the one that gets us, Melissa. This is the troublemaker right here. Yeah, right. this um, is just terrifying. <laughs> the first one is like, I would give like, the first one is like 25% sour. The second one's like 75 to 100. Oh my gosh. But I'll let you be the judge. You tell me if you think the second one's more sour. I have this theory I've been developing. Now. Ugh. <laughs> It is, right? The second one's worse. Yeah, I, I just want to know what's going on with your taste buds that you're putting yourself through this on, on an almost weekly basis. Like, have you lost the ability to taste things? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I lost. I don't remember the world before this, Melissa. This is all I know now. <laughs> this is all you know. But I don't ever eat anything sour. I hate sour. But I do this for you guys. Your pure enjoyment. Now, you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, the second one is three times worse. Now, category creation. We talked offline. I somehow missed exactly what you were. How do you think about category creation when everybody's like, category creation, category creation? It's like everybody's going crazy about it. I think it's a bit of a fad. Yet simultaneously for established business like Litmus, you sit in a category that I didn't have perfect awareness of. How do you think about it? Like you're you're in this weird thing where you're not an email delivery but your email support for delivery and like powering email like how do you think about category creation yeah i think as marketers we get you know we get tied up in our magic quadrants and our forester waves and yep. and we feel if we don't have one of those to shoot for that somehow people won't know that they need us yeah that's a perfectly said yeah um, uh, but we are in this email optimization place where we're not, you know, we're not your email service provider like a Mailchimp or Marketo or Oracle. We're sitting on on top of that, and we're helping you to build the build your emails really efficiently and effectively. Test them, yeah. understand what happens after you send it, and then apply those learnings across your entire marketing mix. Um, and so, in terms of category creation, the fact that there isn't a Gartner magic quadrant for email optimization doesn't bother uh, me too much. And I don't find that it's been particularly limiting for us and how we go to market and that establishing um, understanding customer pains and needs and being able to do a value sell with them so that they understand that they need us other than, you know, seeing us on a, you know, on a list of things that, that they might see in a category creation, you know, scenario. Yeah. Now, if that happens over time, that would be fantastic. And, and we'd look forward to that. But it's not something that I think we are super concerned about. Yeah. I mean, I think if you I've seen the success you've had, it's like a nice to have, not a need to have. Right. And if you focus overly on it, especially when it's outside of your control to a certain extent. Right. Like it does take away from some of your other KPIs. Yeah. Now, you said something really cool. You said offline, you said how like. Marketing now has a seat at the table, and I have no intention of losing that seat. 
And I thought that was awesome because I have a very similar perspective. But if we reverse that, instead of I have no intention of losing my seat, and I translate that more into a question, which is like, how do we keep our seat? You know, like what have you seen? Because I'm you've been in enough nice places to know how people lose their seats. So yes. for everybody in marketing who's maybe a digital marketing director and they're like, I want to be a CMO one day. <laughs> what are some of the things that when you, because you went from director of product, right, to VP to CMO, and you went from some pretty top shops. What was your biggest shock when you went from VP to CMO? Like, what was that thing when you got a seat that you weren't prepared for that maybe anyone listening today could avoid doing and keep a seat better? I think for me, it was, I've always been very hands-on, okay. even when I was a VP leading a larger team. So when I became a CMO, I was getting my hands in areas that I didn't need to be doing that and you know, causing some friction on the team. And that really, my job was to provide feedback, coaching, eliminate any of the obstacles in their area, drive the overall framework and strategy and trust them to do the execution to that overall framework and strategy. But it was a very unnatural act for me for, 100%. you know, years. Like there, somebody's like, Oh, we need a press release. I'm like, I'll draft that for you. <laughs> like, no, Melissa, you don't write the press release. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we get a C in our title and we like, we go a little like, we're like, What's my value anymore? Right. <laughs> we get our skin and it, everything that we associated our values and our strengths and our skills at disappear. We're like, wait a second. I'm going to get good at something entirely different, right? Yes. <laughs> now, when you have a seat at the table, you have to be able to use your voice. In other words, you're at an executive meeting. Maybe it's a quarterly offsite and you've got product there. So you got a CPO, you got a CFO, you got a CRO, you got an EVP of sales, maybe they don't really have a sales C level. It's weird, right? And then you have like a chief executive, chief operations. What are the things they don't want you to say in that meeting? That because I think foot in the mouth syndrome is an epidemic in marketing. Um, you know, we celebrate MQLs and then you know there's no revenue, and right. then we like, right? Like I've seen a lot of that, especially even our own team right here. It's a big consulting thing I always talk about is like, you never celebrate directive wins, you only celebrate client wins. Correct. Because the number one thing you do, and it's, I bet, I'm just sure in house, right? Like you never celebrate marketing wins, you share litmus wins, right? Like, so how do you think about that? Yeah, we we have a, a, a policy and really even, it's all the way down to how our people have their, our teams have their MBOs um, are orchestrated. Our job on this journey is pipeline and revenue. So that's how we're measured. The fact that we have to generate MQLs as part of that process, that is a tactic along that journey. So we yeah. celebrate outcomes, not tactics. And so those are the kinds of things that we just, you don't hear us talking about much. We report out on them, but it's not the focal point. For generating all these MQLs and they don't turn into pipeline quickly that converts into revenue, there's nothing to celebrate there. And yeah. I often, one of the CMOs that I worked for earlier in my career used to say, Melissa, marketing can't be green if sales is red. And that is something that sticks in my brain all yeah. of the time. We can do all of this great stuff. If it doesn't yield a business outcome that moves the needle, we're not doing our jobs effectively. It's very easily said. 
it's very difficultly done to, for you as a CMO, and I found this as an executive myself, to get rid of credit culture. And so how do you attack credit culture even amongst your own channels? Because that obviously translates to the marketing's position in the entire organization. Is so how do you think about like giving people credit for leading KPIs, leading indicators like MQLs and channels, right? The paid team, the organic team, the content team. How do you give people credit in your mind without it becoming look at me? And then people essentially celebrating their success instead of celebrating the team's success, yet still validating their work. And like, how are you juggling that? It's not an easy thing. You know what I mean? How do you juggle that? I think pointing everybody to a common goal. And so on the paid media team, their MBOs are are the business MBOs. And so what's an MBO for everybody listening? Oh, it's sort of your management um, objectives, like the KPIs that you're going to be measured on. Like your OKRs, um, your KPIs. Yeah, your OKRs, same thing. Yep. Um, And basically, you know, we're really prescriptive in how we do that, but it helps us keep everybody really, really focused on what's most important. And so when they have a shared sense of the goals, there's there's not as much, you know, of, well, paid media did its job this month, but this channel underperformed. It really changes the conversation from me to we because we're all looking to move this number. And the same thing with our sales team and that we have a really you know tight joint interlock with them. Wow. So when we talk about these things, we're talking about them together um, as a, a whole you know revenue generating organization versus a sales and marketing discussion. So I think it's really having a shared understanding of those goals and what that means. And we still give credit. We still thank people. I think you have to, it's really important for people to know that their, their work is, you know, driving meaningful results. We have a lot of very detailed reporting so that we can see, you know, from a marketing mix perspective, what's actually moving the needle. So those people on those teams, we make sure we call that stuff out, you know, company wide and, and thank them and encourage them to continue to keep getting better, but it really doesn't, evolve into a me discussion, you know, in our company. No, I love that. That's amazing. Well, Melissa, this has been so fun. Thank you for being on Sour and Sass. Thanks. Thank How, you. How's your mouth doing right now? Are you okay? Are you, is, it, is it like, um, do you have stories? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, it gets better when it first, when you first taste it, it's like, wow, that's intense. Yeah. No. A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much. Well, if anyone wants to follow along with your journey, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, LinkedIn is great. Cool. And I'm also on Twitter. Either one. I'm happy to, to engage. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you again. Bye, Melissa. Thanks. Bye-bye.